What's up, Chapel? How's everybody doing this morning? Good. It is good to be in the house of God this morning. You saw that video of kind of what's going on in Asbury, Kentucky. And I will tell you, um, my wife and probably the staff will tell you, I am by nature cynical, critical, and analytical. And so that is kind of my spiritual gift, which I appreciate and I, that God gave that to me. That and sarcasm, my, my main spiritual gifts. And so I heard about the Asbury Revival a couple of weeks ago. And I, I've, I've read, you know, the staff, we've, we've talked about revivals in different formats. The Welsh Revival, uh, which was an absolutely powerful revival that changed the entire community. Literally, the bars were shutting down because everybody was repenting of drinking. I've seen the Great Awakening with Jonathan Edwards, who I just love reading Jonathan Edwards, the second Great Awakening in Kentucky. I'd see, you know, read, I had AG background, Azusa Street, and, and, and all those things happening. Azusa Street with William Seymour, and just the outpouring of God's spirit, and the charismatic renewal in the 1970s where Catholics were getting spirit-filled, and Church of Christ were getting spirit-filled, that, that the gifts of the spirit were no longer a Pentecostal expression, they were a Christian expression. I've seen and heard all the stories of promise keepers, which to me is a, a revival that hit America. The Brownsville revival, the Toronto blessing, who Dr. Kendall was part of that, who's one of my mentors. So I, I'd heard all of these stories, and and I'd, to be honest, I was kind of critical because I'd seen a lot of people chasing revival, chasing signs and wonders, and thinking that revival was the solution to the fact that they did not have a healthy church. And thinking that revival would fix all the problems in the, in the church. And my philosophy is kind of that revival doesn't fix the problems in your church. Revival exposes the problems in your church. And so I kind of had a bitter taste in my mouth. I saw people trying to make revival happen. And they were chasing revival instead of chasing Jesus. And as a, as a follower, he's not even a pastor, as a follower of Jesus, I cannot stand anything that people love more than Jesus. I don't care if it's the church. I don't care if it's your kids. I don't care if it's addiction. I don't care if it's a revival. If you pursue it more than you pursue Jesus, I have a problem with it. Because he saved me, not revival. My, Jesus saved me, not my wife. Jesus saved me, not my kids. Jesus saved me, not this church. And, and so I, I'm by nature critical of those things. So when it, when it happened, I just saw a beauty that was there at Asbury that I wanted to see. And so I, I text a few people to go with me. I text Pastor Dylan Davis. Who, who was our youth pastor for a season. Now he planted a church in North Nashville. Doug Ferris, pastor of Underwood Baptist, who I'm dear friends with. Uh, and also, Ray Sartain asked me if he could go. So we left at 5.30 in the morning, last Monday morning, drove, picked Dylan up, and went to Asbury, Kentucky, which is in the absolute middle of nowhere. It is like Waterloo. Like the world is looking at Waterloo right now. The town is small. The school is small. And we show up, and there's nowhere to park, so I park in an uh, illegal parking space. And the other guys are like, hey, you're going to get your truck towed. I said, they can't tow your truck during revival. Like, get something. <laughs> and so we get out, and no lie, a guy sees our license plate, and he says, hey, are you all here for the revival? And we said, yeah. And he says, right over there. He said, if you need anything while you're here, just let me know. My name is so-and-so. And it was like automatically just, you know, he's not a greeter. He didn't have a name tag on. He's just a citizen of the city. And so we walk in to this little old 150 year old chapel on this campus of this small Methodist college and the moment you walk in it's just this breath of fresh air it would just you could breathe after the night of the Super Bowl you know I didn't watch the halftime party but the night of the Super Bowl and just busyness and life and you could just breathe and you look around and it's just people old and young black and white and Asian, Hispanic, different backgrounds. The guy in front of me had dreadlocks. I'm bald. Like, it's as different as you could be. And I, I'm worshiping. Like, the moment you walk in, you just feel like you're part of this community of believers that you don't know anyone in the room. And as they begin to worship, the worship wasn't even up to standard, as we would say. Like, the piano was out of tune. They didn't have drums, electric guitar, bass guitar. It was acoustic guitar, out of tune piano, and young college kids who some of them couldn't even keep tone or tune or a note. But what was beautiful about it is everything that was man-made in the church was wiped away. There was no technology. There was no hype. There was no media, there was no kids ministry, there was no usher ministry, there was no greeter ministry, there was no preacher that was there to deliver a message, there was no guest celebrity preacher to show up to draw a crowd, there was no Maverick City or Bethel, it was just college kids. Everything was organic and it was almost like God was just saying, he was just spitting the face of the modern American church saying, you have all this stuff and you can't accomplish what I called you to accomplish, watch this. 
I'm not going to use the church. I'm going to use the college campus. You know why? So no church can get glory for this. There's no pastor here to receive glory. There's no board. or even. It's just a bunch of college kids who were hungry for me. And it was just very interesting that the lack of hype, but yet the beauty. And, and the people were texting me like, what do you think? And I'm just like, the word I'm just using is, is beautiful. Just the beautiful hunger and expression of that hunger. I said, you know, other revivals have been marked by different things, but this one was just beauty. Everything was congregational. No matter what song the worship team started, the congregation would take it over. And the congregation actually became the worship leaders. Prayer was not led from the platform. It was led by everyone inside the room. The congregation was the prayer leaders. The spiritual gifts weren't on display as the drawing and attraction. They were flowing through the congregation. The preaching, there was moments of preaching, especially nighttime, but the preaching was happening from the congregation. Like in the middle of worship, she always shout an, shout an exhortation. And whatever the exhortation of the scripture would be, the worship team would start singing that exhortation. And then the congregation would start, everything was congregational. And I told somebody, I said, you know, if, if Brownsville and Toronto, some of the charismatic revivals were Acts chapter 2, 1 through 12. You know, the day of Pentecost, fire and power and tongues. Then this one is Acts 2, 42 through 47, where they were devoted to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship of believers and the breaking of bread and communion and prayers and sharing with one another what they had. It was a beautiful expression of what the church could be. This is gorgeous. Somebody else had called and texted me and said, hey, you know, my wife's going, what, what do you think? I said, if you come here seeking signs and wonders, you'll be disappointed. But if you come here seeking Jesus, you'll be satisfied. And I said, everything that you, you could think of in a charismatic expression is there. They would give testimonies. And as they give testimonies, there's one little girl, she reminded me of my daughter Alicia, really meek and kind of mild. And, and she was sharing this testimony. Somebody gave her a word. And this word was something to the extent she had a red umbrella. And this umbrella was broken and falling apart. And it was her covering. It was her safety. It was her security. It was her peace. It protected her from the storms. But God was giving her a new umbrella, and this umbrella would be red, and it would be her covering, it would be her peace, it would be her safety. And she began to wept, and she talked about how she attempted suicide two years ago in high school. Now she's 19. Came to college, thought she was through with that, and she was dealing with the anxiety and depression and stress of college. And they prayed for her, and she just wept. It was telling this story in this testimony how she was delivered and felt peace for the very first time in her entire teenage life. And she said, I even then prayed over somebody. He said, I've never prayed out loud before in my life. And so one of the altar workers said, why don't you just pray right now for anybody who has anxiety or, or suicidal thoughts or depression. Some people stand up with anxiety, depression, mental health, explain mental health, and walk through. And this little girl who's meek and mild went from barely able to talk to praying fire down from heaven in boldness. So much so there was an audible, oh, my goodness, in the room. The gifts were flowing. A guy in front of me had a word for me. I had a word for somebody else in the room. The gifts were flowing all through the congregation. Yet there was no man of God standing at the front as the altar to draw people to them. Everything happened out there. It's almost like God said, I, I've given you a chance. I don't need you. I want to show off my presence and my beauty in a different way. And so you saw the things. Everything was beautiful. It was congregational. But there's also these divine connections that were happening all over the place. And it was interesting. One of the testimonies... This, this young woman who's probably younger 30s, she comes up to share a testimony. She said, yesterday before I left, uh, I ran into this woman. She's like, and I didn't know why I was coming to Asbury. She's like, I'm from Indiana. I had no idea why I was coming. Just felt like I was supposed to come. And I was standing there about to leave. I would met somebody. I was talking to her. And this young mom and this little six-year-old girl walk across the auditorium directly to me. She's like, I see them make eye contact with me. And they come directly towards me. And the mom says, this is my six-year-old daughter. She has this rare uh, disease. I can't remember what the name of the disease was. This rare disease that affects her stomach and her anxiety and her fear. And she says, her stomach's hurting right now. And she's desperate with anxiety and fear. We have to leave. But I didn't want to leave without her being prayed for. Now, granted, she didn't take her down to some man of God, down to the altar. She took her to some random woman. And this woman, telling the testimony, begins to weep. She says, I happen to be an MD. And my specialty is this rare childhood disease. And she leaned over the little girl, and she sort of asked her what was going on. And she said, can I just pray for you? And she begins to pray for her. And as she's praying for her, the little girl begins to weep and cry out, I'm not afraid anymore, Mommy. I'm not afraid anymore. I'm not afraid anymore. After she said amen, she started asking her, as a doctor, not as a prayer altar, as a doctor, 
her symptoms and this. And the little girl says, I feel great. I've never felt like this before in my life. And the woman says, well, here's my personal number. I want you all to come to my clinic. I'll pay for it. I want you all to come to my clinic so I can treat you if you're not healed completely. Pastor Dylan Davis and me were outside during nighttime. We, we left. We were there about six, seven hours Monday. And we left to go eat and came back. And the fire marshal shut down Hughes Auditorium. It was so full that if somebody left, they'd say one person can come in. But the fire marshal blocking like he was the bouncer of the club. They opened up a little auditorium across the street with overflow, with a simulcast. They opened up another chapel down the street. All three chapels were overflowing. So they put speakers out on the front steps of Hughes Auditorium so that people could still worship and pray out front. And so me and Dylan went out there and we're out there worshiping. People knelt down on the sidewalk. People laid out on the steps. And this guy walks up with an Alabama hoodie on. Right? You're, you're in Kentucky. You know, Alabamas don't travel far. And I said, hey, man, are you from Alabama? He said, no, no I'm from Nashville. My wife's from Alabama. I said, really? Well, I'm from, I'm from Nashville. I said, where are you from in Nashville? He said, I'm from Goodlettsville, which is literally where I was born. And I said, really, where'd you go to high school? He said, well, I was homeschooled for a year, went to beach, and that was like a rival. And I was like, do you know so We knew all the same people. He said, well, I happened to be a youth pastor, used to be a youth pastor at Goodlettsville Nazarene, which is, we called it Good Naz. I know all the pastors there. That's where Abby Davis, Dylan's wife's whole family grew up and was at. So Dylan says, do you know uh, Ben Peoples? He said, man, I graduated Ben Peoples. He said, has he gotten saved yet? Dylan said, he's my brother-in-law, he's my worship leader. He said, again, has he gotten saved yet? And, and so I was like, man, that's cool. I said, like, where's your wife from? He's like, man, you probably never heard of this town in Alabama, but it's called Florence, Alabama. I was like, well, thank you. The next day, Pastor Dylan, he wanted to, <laughs> his record, but Dylan wanted to steal a hymnal from the auditorium as a souvenir. I said, you can't, we've already illegally parked, you can't steal the hymnal, like, so he goes to a bookstore on campus, part of the seminary, and he's trying to buy a, a hymnal, which he, he did. But there's a 26-year-old seminarian student there, and he said, hey, I'm Dylan. What's your name? He said, well, I'm so-and-so. He said, where are you from? He said, Nashville. Dylan said, I'm actually from Hendersonville. He said, man, that's where I'm from. They actually went to the same school. He says, well, where are you living at? He said, I'm from White House now. I live in White House. And Dylan said, I actually planted a church in White House. And, like, everything was these divine connections. Pastor Dylan went down for prayer at the altar and this is open prayer. I mean, people are weeping out in the congregation. People are laid out the altar in repentance. People are crying out. They had altar workers just to help guide prayer for you if you needed it. So Dylan goes down. I won't tell you the details because it's his private time with the Lord. But he goes down and he says, he said, Pastor, is the most non-emotional, non-charismatic, charismatic thing I've ever seen in my life. He said, I go down. She asks me my name. I tell her my name. She tells me her name. She says, hey, do you have a problem with so-and-so? Dylan said, I've done the 70 times 7 thing, but I guess yes. And she begins to pray for him. She says, Father, I just rebuke this spirit of rejection between these two people. And I pray that it's removed and forgiveness can flow so that their relationship can be restored and the church and the kingdom can be restored. And then she gave a word, a word of knowledge about the other person for forgiveness for them as well. Everything was just, it was this freedom and flow, this freedom and flow, this beauty and expression that was just powerful in every single way. James Edwards, who's preached here, who's from Houston, he called me, he's like, man, I'm going to go, you know, I'm a revivalist, I'm going to go. I said, James, listen, if you go looking for signs and wonders, you're going to be disappointed. But if you go looking for Jesus, you're going to be satisfied. And he texted me from the line. He waited six hours to get in on Wednesday, I believe it was. Six hours. And he texted me. He said, I've never experienced the peace and the beauty of God's presence like this in my life. He's like, I see the gifts. I see the signs and wonders. They're just not on display. The only draw. And the, one of the college leaders said this. He said, there are no celebrities here. You don't know any of these worship leaders. You don't know, you don't know me. You don't know any of the people who have been up here. There are no celebrities here except for Jesus. In the moment somebody else becomes a celebrity, we shut this thing down. It was hunger. Hunger in the congregation. Hunger that was driving it. It wasn't the, you know, and we, we can be honest. Like when we come to church now, we, wanna, we come for a preacher. We come for the music style or the music worship leader. We come for a preaching style. We come out of selfish motivations. But as we ran into this little girl at the coffee shop who's part of the original 20 people that were praying, we asked her, what was it like? She says, be honest, it was a normal chapel, but worse. She said the worship, in her terms, was God-awful that day. Nothing worked right. The sound didn't work. The instruments didn't work right. The message was bad. It wasn't anything special. 
So at the end of it, the guy just said, hey, if you want to pray, we're going to stay and pray after service. You can stay and pray. She said, about 15 of us stayed. Some had to go to class. He said, oh, if you need to go to class, go to class. She got stayed, and I had another class come in. I looked down, it was an hour and a half later, and I thought it was five minutes. And I missed my class, so I decided to stay a little bit longer. And then other people started coming back that just got out of class, started coming in, and it was about 40 people. She said, we started praying, so again, it just felt like time stood still. She said, next thing you know, people started showing up with their instruments, whether acoustic guitar, cellos, and we started worshiping, and there was about 60 people, and all of a sudden, the school sent out an email saying, hey, the auditorium's still open, the chapel's still open, if you want to go pray, people are there praying. Next thing we know, it's 100, 200, 300, 400 people. Just hunger. Not a better worship service, just hunger. And there's something about hunger that I believe God will pass over those who are full in order to feed those who are hungry. And when you get so full that you get content or you get bloated, you miss what God is doing. And so we use three words here, renewal, revival, and awakening to describe these type of things. And so the word renewal is personal. That means it's a personal revival. It's it's you're experiencing a renewal of your passion, a renewal of your first love, a renewal of holiness, a renewal of purification. Renewal is personal, and it's guaranteed. Jesus promised seasons of renewal. It takes repentance. And then you receive forgiveness, and then there's renewal. It's guaranteed. But revival and awakening are not guaranteed. They're these divine moments that God gives us to get us back on track where he wants us to be. So if renewal is personal, revival is corporate. It's part of the church. It's where God reawakens a church or revives a church from a state of uh, apathy or being lukewarm or being selfish or being sinful awakens it back to its New Testament loves and p- priorities and passions. Well, a pastor friend of mine, I posted, he said, you know, it's great if you can go to Asbury, but, you know, I'm not going. I've, I've experienced times of the Lord on my own at the, in my church by myself. I experienced God's voice and his presence. That's great. That's renewal. But there's something about when we all had the same experience together that unites us and creates an Acts chapter 2 community. But revival is not guaranteed. It's just the sovereignty of God when he decides to pour out his spirit upon a group of people. And the last but not least is awakening. Awakening is for the community, meaning the shoals area. That, that's why we pray for other churches. We don't want something to just be for us. We want it to be for everybody. Awakening is when God touches a church to touch a community. And that's what you're seeing right now at Asbury. Not to give it language. You even asked one of the leaders there, I think he's the president of the college, said, what is this? Is it revival? I don't know. He's like, normally in revival church history, we don't give something a title until 20, 30 years afterwards. He said, here's all that we know, that God is pouring out. And it's our job to make sure we keep the vessel underneath where God is pouring out. But it's becoming an awakening that I saw yesterday. You can't even get into the town of Wilmore, Kentucky anymore because it's so overflowed with people that the city can't handle any more guests. Could you imagine them locking down Highway 72 and 43 and 47 and shutting off the bridge saying no more people can come to Florence, Alabama? Well, why? Is it an earthquake? No. Is it a Chinese balloon? No. It's the presence of God is so strong that it's overcome our city. That's an awakening. And that's what you're seeing happening. And it's happening in a generation that's not me. It's young 18 to 25-year-old kids. Not to say that God's given up on us, but one of my prayers, my oldest daughter, Alicia, went to college was, God, I want her to experience revival in her generation. A generation that's faced COVID, social media, a generation that's faced lockdowns and masks and all these, the highest suicide rate ever in a generation, all these things. It's almost like God says, I'm going to pour out my generation, my spirit in this generation because the enemy's been so hard after them. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. So what is revival? It's just some quick terminology for you. Revival is when God's presence is intensified and his purpose is accelerated. Revival is when his, his presence is intensified, like it's manifest, like you can, you can tangibly experience his presence. But his purposes, it's not just about his presence, his purposes on earth are accelerated. Evangelism accelerates, prayer accelerates, the mission accelerates. It's when his presence is intensified and his purpose is accelerated. Jonathan Edwards said, revival is the intensification and the acceleration of the normal work of the Holy Spirit. 
And he's always been doing this, but now it's just intensified. Revival is when God revives his church through his spirit so it can be a voice into the culture. I think one of the things God is saying is there's a time now of separation between the church and culture. There was strategies in the early 2000s of being incarnational and relational ministry where you tried to try to be like the world to reach the world. I think God said that's over. I think what he's saying is I need some people that are on fire for me. That can be a voice to culture, not people in the culture. Something is changing. Charles Finney said revival presupposes the church is backslidden. And revival brings her back to life. Revival brings purity of worship, preaching, prayer, and people that pleases God and draws people back to God. It purifies his bride. It purifies his people. It purifies us. It's man moving to the background and the Holy Spirit moving to the forefront. It's man moving to the sidelines and Jesus standing at half court or the midfield line. It changes everything. And so to give you some contrast, revival is not hype. Revival is hunger. It's not a social media strategy. It's not more people in the room. It's not hype. you got to get there. you got to get there. No, it's just hunger. Revival is not hype. It is hunger. Revival is not charismatic. If you come from Pentecostal charismatic things, you think that charismatic churches have the Holy Spirit and Baptist churches don't and Methodist churches don't and Catholic churches don't. No, it's not a charismatic expression. Revival is a Christian experience. Revival is not better church services. It's not more full rooms and better worship and better preaching and better altar ministry. No, revival is not a better church service. Revival is pure and stronger churches. Revival is not a strategy of the kingdom. Revival gets the church back to the priorities of the kingdom. Revival is not the objective it's not the goal. It's not what we're seeking. It's not, not the, 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 you know, the mission statement of the church is we're a revival church. It's not the objective. It's what puts the objectives back into proper focus. And revival is not forever. A revival is for a moment. It's a moment in time God gives his church to experience his fire. And what does fire do? It purifies. It warms. It re-energizes. It brings power. And throughout church history, there's been these moments of outpourings. You can call them revivals or renewal or awaken, whatever you want to call it. But these divine sovereign moments where God decides to pour out his spirit on people to get his church back to where it's supposed to be, back to the Acts chapter 2 experience. To remove the names and titles of men and remove the denominational things. You know, you sit in a room with 1,500 people in a chapel with no lights and technology. And there's Methodist people and Baptist people, Church of Christ people and Catholic people. You know, no one was there because of a theological background. No one was there because of their favorite preacher was in town. No one was there because they were playing their favorite worship style of music. They weren't there because they were doing gospel or Christian contemporary or prophetic worship. Everyone was there for one thing, to experience the outpouring of God's presence because they're so hungry, there's nothing else that will fill them. So there's been these moments of fire, but Jesus gave two objectives to the New Testament church in my point of view. Obviously a commandment, go and love your neighbor as yourself and love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. We know that, but these two objectives he gave the church corporately. One is to go and wait for the power of the Holy Spirit to come upon you, the fire part of Christianity. But the other one was the formation. He said, go into all the world and make disciples, teaching them to observe all I've taught you, and lo, I'll be with you always. Fire and formation. Revival and spiritual discipleship. Fire and formation. I have yet to see a church that can handle the fire of God and still form people in the image of God. Either they're fire churches or formation churches. And what you're seeing at Asbury is they're trying to navigate how do we experience the fire of God but also the formation of God. And I think the way you do that is you realize that God's going to pour out wine, but he's going to pour it out in wineskins that are moldable enough so that we can form to the wine. And I think he had to choose a younger generation in order to pour his wine out into because they're the only ones that are still soft enough and moldable enough to contain the wine. So, Pastor, you may be speaking for yourself. I don't know if you're speaking to me. No, no, I think we have proven that we are such rigid people 
that if God poured his spirit into most of us, it would break us. You say, well, how could you say that, Pastor? I've watched churches split over masks, over politics, over COVID, over vaccines, over critical race theory, over shutdowns. You name it, we have split over. You know why? Because we are old wine skins. And so God found a group of people, a generation of people, that have yet to be tainted by the idols of our American culture to pour his spirit out in. I wish it was me. I wish it was you and A. But he chose a group of people that were hungry enough for nothing more than the presence of God. And they're marked forever by it. Forever. They're marked by this experience. And you look through church history, you look at Brownsville. Brownsville means marked by power. It was a power expression of the Holy Spirit. You look at uh, the Toronto Blessing. They were marked by joy and just the joy of God. You look at some of the other ones. Um, the Promise Keepers were marked by unity. The Charismatic Renewal was marked by spiritual gifts. Azusa Street was marked by tongues and interpretations. But this one's marked by beauty. And it makes it no different than the other ones. It just makes it different and special. So I'm, real quick, I know I'm going. I'm going to give you 11 marks of revival. I've been teaching this. There's 10 marks for years, but there's actually 11 that I found. I'm going to go real quick so we can get into some prayer time. But number one is this. The number one mark is timing. Revivals emerge during times of spiritual and moral decline. You have to look no further than the Super Bowl or social media to see that our culture is in a time of moral and spiritual decline. I think what we're seeing in America, in the American church more specifically, we're seeing what church can look like without the presence of God. We're seeing it. It can look like a political rally. It can look like division. It can look like a production. It can look like a show. It can look like manipulation. It can look like church hurt. And I think we're seeing what it looks like as, not just us, but the church as a whole. What's it look like when the Holy Spirit just says, y'all do your thing and I'll just be waiting here in the corner and when you're ready, just let me know. Two is prayer. That every rival is marked by prayer. God puts a longing into people's heart to pray for revival. And not just revival, but renewal in me. If, if it's going to start, it has to start personally in believers and it starts through prayer, a hunger for God's presence, a hunger for God to move, a hunger for God to do something. And one of the guys that was leading prayer says, there's a certain type of prayer that precedes the move of God. It's not a template or a formula, but there's a certain type of prayer that precedes the move of God that we've seen through church history. And it's not a ceremonial prayer. It's not a blessing of the food. It's not a just trying to surface level talk to God. It's a crying out. And throughout the New Testament, Jesus would bypass certain people that probably had the same sicknesses or diseases, but he heals Bartimaeus. Why? Because he's crying out. There's a certain type of prayer that precedes the move of God, and it is not a functional, formal, uh, religious, traditional type of prayer. It is simply when the soul cries out that you're the only answer. Prayer. Conviction. Repentance to salvation. I mean, there should be a mark mark of holiness on any move of the Holy Spirit. That when there's an outpouring that you saw people, you'll be standing next to somebody at As in Asbury and the person next to you will begin weeping in conviction. People lay down at the altar weeping in conviction. Why? The Holy Spirit always draws us closer to Jesus and always purifies us when we're in his presence. Conviction, holiness. For uh, God's word, a return to the hunger of God's word. People in, throughout there, me included, were just reading scripture in the presence of God. There's a hunger for more of his word. It's like wood upon the fire of the Holy Spirit. Healing, whether it's physical or inner healing. Saw people being healed, people giving testimonies, inner healing, anxiety, depression, and stress, all these things. Five is unity. Unity, one of the themes was just forgiveness and unforgiveness being broken away and all these things and unity coming in. And I think one of the marks is that God is showing us that younger generations seek unity more than division. 
And I think that's one of the things that I believe may happen out of this revival for our country is that we've been so divided over everything else, God found the, the group of people that he could unite. And we are honest that, you know, as we get older, we, we kind of build our relationships based on sameness. Whether it's same race or same socioeconomic status or same ethnicity or same political affiliations or same theological backgrounds. And he has young people. Young people tend to define their relationships by love. Six, the Holy Spirit. An outpouring of, and movement in the gifts of the Holy Spirit begin to operate and flow. For where the Spirit is, there are his gifts as well. Kingdom focus, the refocusing on the kingdom, not on just a church, but on the kingdom as a whole. And that people come together. That's why a charismatic pastor and a Baptist, Southern Baptist pastor can ride in the truck for five hours and worship together. Why? It's a kingdom focus. Missional urgency, salvation of souls. We can't just stay here. we got to go share this with other people. I have to go share the presence of Jesus with other people. I have to go share the gospel. There's a missional urgency. Also a glory for God. In the middle of revival, no one gets glory but God. And the moment somebody else starts getting glory is when God moves on. Reformation, renewal of the church. God revives the church and moves it back to his New Testament Christianity. Where the gospel and the power of the spirit and the kingdom of God begin to flow in these Acts chapter 2 organic natural expressions of the bride of Christ. So you say, but Pastor, that's great, but what are we to do? Well, it's very clear in Scripture. Most of us know 2 Chronicles 7, 14. And I'm going to read it to you just so you hear it again. If, everybody say if. My people, not the world, not them over there, my people. So if you're God's people, this is for you. Who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then, everybody say then. I don't know how long goes you were in English, but if and then, if is the cause, then is the effect. Then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sins and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. For now I've chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. The revival is a sovereign act of God, but there's a preparation that shall be made by God's people in order to receive the outpouring of God's spirit. He says, if my people. It's easy to point at the halftime show of the Super Bowl and point at those people. It's a lot harder to point at these people. It's a lot easier to start pointing fingers at you know, this congressman, politics, and these people. It's much easier to point fingers, but it's a lot harder to say these people. At 3051 Cloverdale Road. These people at 251 Hazelwood Lane. These people. It's much harder to say these people. We want to push the blame out there, but God said, no, no, if my people, he's talking about the land being broken and decrepit and depraved, and he's not saying, I'll wipe out those people. He said, no, if my people, what do they need to do? We have a responsibility to humble ourselves, acknowledge that we're empty, acknowledge we're not God, to acknowledge we've tried it our way and it did not work, to pray or to surrender to seek his face, which is passion. It's not spectating. It's passionate worship. It's participating in the house of God. And to turn from our wicked ways to his ways, which is repentance and purity. And we do our part, our responsibility, to humility, to surrender, passion, and repentance. What does God say he'll do? God will hear from heaven. And I don't know what you're looking for. Every answer I need is not going to come from the IRS or the government. It's not going to come from the stock market or a financial advisor. It's not going to come from the preacher. not going to come from the doctor. Every answer I need comes from heaven. And God says, if I do this, I will hear from heaven. What will he do? He says he wants to dwell with us. He wants us to host him. He wants to be in our midst. He says he wants to listen to us. He'll answer our prayers. He wants to forgive us of those hidden sins, those dark sins, those sins we've never confessed. He wants to forgive us of even those. He wants to heal us physically and spiritually and internally. He wants to heal us, but also heal our land. Our land in the shoals where poverty is 
outrageous, where hatred and racism are still outrageous, where political divisions are outrageous. He wants to heal our nation, our land. He wants to do that, not us. He, he wants to do it. And then he wants us to see. He wants us to see how he sees. He wants to see visions and dreams of what could be. And sight is all about the future and all about hope. And I think one of the things he's showing us right now is he wants us to see that we, no matter where we go, there's a generation behind us that our, floor, our ceiling is their floor. So I have the worship team come back up. And you say, what are we going to do? We're just going to pray. If you would, stand to your feet. And we're going to pray basically along with 2 Chronicles 7.14. I don't know what your hunger level is. I don't know what your answers you need. But I'm pretty confident your answers, if you could have gotten them by now, would have already gotten them. And so maybe you're needing an answer from heaven. Maybe you need God to hear your cry. I will tell you there's a certain type of cry I believe precedes the move of God. Does it mean you have to come to the altar? No. Does it mean you should? Maybe. Does God hear you where you're at? Maybe. But Bartimaeus came to that roadside and he cried out. Hunger. Another pastor called me and I said, I don't think I've ever been in a room where there was not a single spectator. There was not a single critic. Just a room full of hungry people that are simply hungry. And I think when you acknowledge your emptiness, God begins to pour. So we're just going to pray. And here's what we're going to pray. We're going to pray for, we're going to repent publicly. You say, well, Pastor, what do I need to repent for? I, I don't know. Maybe chasing things and pursuing things above pursuing Jesus. Maybe you can take out your, your iPhone if you have one and look at your screen time. If your screen time is more full of social media than it is Jesus, then maybe you should repent of that. Maybe, maybe you've been caught up in political ideologies and idols that you've been so passionate about elections and politics and, and this and that that you realize your passion for Jesus and his house isn't nearly as strong as your passion for politics in this nation. Maybe for you, it's you want to, your opinion of being lukewarm or apathetic towards the things of God. Maybe for you, it's maybe being a bad example to those you're trying to see follow you, your kids or your grandkids. If, if they follow you as they follow the Lord, where will they end up? Maybe it's repentance of sin, greed, selfishness, alcoholism, drunkenness I don't know repentance and then we're going to pray for inner healing and healing I believe one of the things God is doing right now is he's healing people of stress, anxiety, depression and suicide it's interesting where the spirit of the Lord is there is freedom we're going to pray for the generation behind us, Gen Z has been marked as everything from lazy and apathetic to you know, image-based and the self-generation. We're going to pray that they can be the fuel to the next fire. That our, our stealing, whatever, however it may be, may be their floor. And you saw in the 60s and 70s that Jesus people moved, still changing the church today. It was nothing but a bunch of young college-age people who loved God, loved each other, and worshipped their rear ends off. And then we're going to pray for the Holy Spirit to come. So if you would, we're going to pray for repentance first. And wherever you're at, if you want to come down front and do that, I just want us to take this, as it says, they humble themselves and see nothing. We're going to take the posture of kneeling. And so you can kneel right where you are. You can come down front. You can come to the aisles. Just, I want you to just kneel. Do I have to kneel? No, but kneeling is a sign that I'm surrendered. Kneeling is a sign that I'm submitted. And I'm going to, I'm going to pray second. I'm going to let y'all pray first. Just repent. I'll tell you, I need to repent of getting caught up in the machine of church. Getting caught up in sermon preparation. Getting caught up in meetings and leadership. Strategies. Which all that's good, but sometimes we seek those things more than we seek Him.
repentance is not just an asking, it's a crying, it's a turning. pray for inner healing, healing of soul ties and anxiety and depression, all the things on the inside of us that are robbing us of what Jesus promised us through his spirit. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. 
shouldn't be fear, shouldn't be anxiety, shouldn't be depression, shouldn't be suicide. And we, we have counseling, we believe in all that and, and encourage that. But sometimes you just need to know and be reminded that God's spirit brings freedom. And that it's not his will for you to think of suicidal statements that you have been bought with a price. And Ephesians 2 says that you were saved to accomplish good works he prepared beforehand and calls you a masterpiece. And so I'm going to ask you to be bold right now. If you're saying, I need, I need healing of this on the inside of me. And I don't know where it may come from. Maybe childhood trauma, maybe abuse, maybe church hurt. I don't know where it is. But I'm going to ask you, just right where you are, I just want you to stand up so we can pray for you. So that's me. I need, I need healing on the inside. Anxiety, stress, depression, suicide, whatever it may be. If you see somebody standing up around you, I want you to just, I want to help you pray. I want you to go lay your hands on them and begin to pray for them right now. So I want everybody in the room to be praying. Some in the mezzanine, some in the balcony. That when you get saved, it's not just an eternal salvation. It's an inner salvation. Yes, you have to renew your mind, but God restores the soul and makes you a new creation in Christ. And all that you believe and all that you think of anxious thoughts, Jesus already gave you the answer. He said, look at the birds of the air. Look at the flowers of the field. If I take care of them, won't I take care of you? But he says, seek first the kingdom of heaven, which is the presence of God and his righteousness. And he's these things should be added unto you. He says, if you have any concerns or worries, cast your anxieties upon me. And so right now, we just agree in prayer that the Holy Spirit is present, that you are the temple of the Most High God. And the temple is not an exterior building, it's an internal reality where His Spirit loves to dwell, Father, in Jesus' name. for words of knowledge to flow right now, words of encouragement and prophetic words to begin to flow. To unlock doors that have been locked since childhood abuse and trauma. It's kept people in fear and anxiety and worry for way too long. Holy Spirit, I'm praying right now for your freedom to flow not just in the soul or the spirit of the people that are standing, but I pray it flows through every single vessel of their body. As the blood flows, I pray freedom flows through their brain, to renew their brain, to refresh their brain, to cast out and push out all thoughts of suicide, all thoughts of depression, all thoughts of anxiety, all thoughts of fear, all thoughts of worry. preaching, teaching, and healing. And he's still a healer through his Holy Spirit. If you say you needed healing in your physical body, 
whether it's an injury or sickness or disease or diabetes or cancer. He said, I just need God to touch me. I need to be healed. I need like that one with the issue of blood. If I could just touch the presence of Jesus. Let you stand up right where you are real quick. Said, I need healing in my body. Anybody else? I said healing in my body. I'm going to ask if you're around somebody who's standing, if you would again just lay hands on them and begin just pray for them. Here's what you're going to pray. As you lay hands on them, you're going to pray this. Jesus, your blood paid for it all. Not just salvation, but for healing and for freedom. And by the stripes that Jesus took, he paid for my healing, paid for their healing. It says in James that I pray that your, that your body prospers, your health prospers, as your soul prospers. And so, Father, right now, I just pray that their body comes in, in alignment with their soul that their soul has been healed, their soul has been renewed, their soul has been transformed. I pray right now for a healing in their body, whether it's an injury or sickness or disease, we rebuke everything out of their body is not from you. Any bacteria, any virus, any germs, any diseases, we rebuke. Father, if there's anything missing from their bodies, any vitamins, any minerals, any nutrients, Father, we pray that you supernaturally replenish those things. Father, these are children of you children of God. They are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. If there's no sickness in heaven, I pray there's no sickness in their body. It also says where two or three touch and agree. Let it be so. so. Father, right now we just pray for healing in this room. Father, I'm, I'm going ahead and I'm thanking you for testimonies of those who have been the doctor after doctor after doctor who have taken prescription after prescription after prescription. They've looked for answers from man and answers from medicine but now father i'm praying for an answer from heaven a touch father i've even reminded of so many healings in our family's past and history of just unexplainable by doctors father unexplainable by nurses unexplainable by science but father only explainable by a touch from god father i pray right now in this room that in the months coming there'll be only explanations by the touch from God. So we a healing to reign in Jesus' mighty name. And last but not least, if you're under the age of, say, 30, I want you to stand to your feet. He said, I'm under the age of 30. I know that Y'all know this, I don't need to explain this to you, but you are a generation that is a pivotal generation. I think every generation says that about the next generation, but if you look at the world, the world is more chaotic, more divided, more hate-filled place than it's ever been before. And you as the young people have been attacked over and over again by divorce in your family, by death through COVID, by anxiety and depression, by social media comparisons. Like you were kept out of school for two years but had to maintain the same standards. Like it's one thing after another. And the reason, when you look through the Bible, every time God's about to do something, the enemy attacks the generation he's gonna move in right before he moves. Look at Moses. Before Moses was born, they were casting the babies of the Hebrews off into the Nile River. You look at Jesus. Right before he's born, they start killing all the children of the Jews. Look at Jeremiah chapter 1. That God knew you and formed you in your mother's womb and had a purpose and a plan for you. And since then, you've seen that attack be attacked through abortion, through broken homes, through poverty. And so I believe God is doing something in your generation. I believe as you look around this room, parents, adults, that you're seeing a generation that are the leaders, not the next generation leaders, will be the leaders of this church. Which means there's people in this room who may have to give up their seat in the passenger seat of calling shotgun to let younger leaders have their time. 
And though you may take the back seat to some of what they're doing, you'll see God blessed and glorified and use them for their generation. So if you see that, I just want you to stand up. Again, I want y'all to, this is a big one. I want you to stand around and lay your hands on them. And here's what we're praying for. We're praying that our ceiling, no matter what you have to, your ceiling spiritually, your ceiling financially, your ceiling in career, your ceiling in leadership, your ceiling in ministry is their floor. That what you've experienced is just a foretaste of what they're going to experience in their generation. That in a generation of brokenness and broken families, you're seeing a generation of husbands and wives will be a model and example of covenant marriage. You're seeing moms and dads will take family discipleship more seriously than sports and entertainment. You're seeing a generation that will cherish and host the presence of God, not just go to church services. You're seeing a generation that won't just go to church to meet, they'll go to church to meet with God. You're gonna see a generation people will carry fire that when the world's on fire the fire inside of them is so much hotter and brighter that they cannot be dismayed or swayed by the things of the world you can see a generation that looks like the new testament that worship happens in their homes scripture is taught in their homes prayer is lifted up in their homes their home is an altar unto god and church becomes an overflow of the altar at their house. Oh, Father, I thank you so much for young people who've been cast off by society, cast off by culture, even cast off by the church. And I'm reminded what you've told Paul to tell Timothy that, hey, don't let them look down upon you based on youth, but show them through your love and through your purity an example of godliness. So, Father, I'm praying right now for a generation that can be an example even in their youthfulness, even in their young fervor and their passion. It can be an example to all people of what it looks like to follow Jesus. A generation that shows you what it looks like to live like Jesus, to love like Jesus, to walk like Jesus, to act like Jesus, and to wait for Jesus' return. Well, I pray this is the Maranatha generation. Oh, come, Lord Jesus. They're not concerned with you coming too early to disrupt their plans or too early to disrupt their dreams or too early to disrupt their ministry or too early to disrupt their careers or too early to disrupt their relationships. They say, come, Lord Jesus. So while I pray what you do in them produces warmth in all the older generations. Father, those that have grown lukewarm or apathetic, that the fire within the younger generation becomes the fuel for the passion of all the rest of us. Oh, Jesus. Pray, have your way. And last but not least, Father, we stand here in humility, in prayer, in your presence. And here's what we simply ask. Come, Holy Spirit. We didn't say come gifts. We didn't say come power. We didn't say come growth. We didn't say come increase. We just said simply come Holy Spirit. As we acknowledge our emptiness, I pray that you come. As we acknowledge our lack of wisdom, we pray that you come. And we're not giving you any requirements prerequisites of how you can come. Just come. If you want to come in power, come in power. If you want to come in fire, come in fire. If you want to come in joy, come in joy. If you want to come in the baptism in the Holy Spirit, come. If you want to come in the prophetic gifts, come. Just come. Fill in every empty space. Come and fill 
every wounded place. Come and fill every broken place. Just come. Come with peace. Come with hope. Come with power. Come with joy. Come and rest. Come.